Well, let's turn to the passage I read in your hearing in Acts chapter 17, uh, chapter 19, and uh, verse 28. Let me get that right now. Acts chapter 17 and verse 28. Acts 17. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. I read it to you, uh, this passage because it's an immensely important part of the New Testament. It's an example of how Christians speak to a pagan and ignorant world. It shows missionaries, for example, who move into an area where they've never heard at all of the Bible or of Jesus Christ, uh, how they are to begin, what they are to say, what they are to highlight uh, in introducing these people to the Christian message. What we have here is Luke's summary of Paul's sermon in 10 verses from 22 to 31. Uh, And he makes a dozen points um, as he courageously confronts the um, Stoics and the Epicurean philosophers on Mars Hill. It takes about two minutes to read these uh, 10 verses I guess his sermon lasted about 30 minutes. We know it had a life-changing impact on a man called Dionysius and a woman called Damaris. They became founder members of the church in Athens. And I've looked at this occasionally then. I think it's nine occasions before I've gone through this chapter with you. And today we're going to see what Paul's message was to the Areopagus concerning the nature of man. What is man, and how does he relate to God? So the first point I want to make to you is that we can only know ourselves if we know God. This is the claim we make as Christians. We've been taught by Scripture that we know what we are because we have been given grace to know God as he is. So, um, this Areopagus was really the watch committee that kept an eye on wandering teachers that came into Athens and began to speak in the marketplace. And they were wealthy aristocrats, the city council. And they, he tells them, they owed their existence not to the gods of Greece, but to the god that Paul was bearing witness to. The God who had sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. The God who had brought Paul there to the city to speak to them. He is the creator. Verse 24, he made the world and everything in it. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in ornate temples and Athens was just filled. Every street was filled with temples and altars. And he doesn't demand such service as sacrifices and offerings and payments to priests and priestesses because the Lord came into the world to serve us and to give his life as a ransom for many people. He's the Lord who made every nation. He made Greece. 
He made Rome. He made Wales. He determined our histories, our triumphs, our defeats, times of expansion and times of disaster, and the exact places where nations should live. He's the involved God, the God who expects people to find him. And he promises that every person who seeks after him, he will find him. No one will fail to find him who doesn't seek earnestly and ask God to make himself known to us. He's the God who is not far from any of us, he tells them. He's not an elusive God. He's not a mysterious God. He spoke in times past to Israel's fathers through Moses and David and Samuel and and the prophets. And in these last days, he has spoken unto us by his son, Jesus Christ. He speaks to housewives and slaves and soldiers and teenagers and, and fishermen. So you can know about him and you can know God for yourself. He's not far from any one of us, and that us of Paul embraced then, the two dozen philosophers that were listening to him there. He's not far from us, he said. He's not far from us. This morning, God has revealed himself in in this book. And God has revealed himself then, especially through his son Jesus Christ. He speaks to us as the Bible is preached to us. And you can know yourself. You can know who you are as you come to know the living God. But if you reject the living God and the possibility of knowing him, well, who, you, who have you got if you turn away from my Savior? How are you going to know who you are? Uh, the people in Athens, they, they went to the uh, fairy stories of the gods on Mount Olympus and how they fought one another and killed one another and lusted after one another. And, well, we don't go there, do we? Many people in Aberystwyth go to the animal world and the theory of evolution. And they describe human beings as naked apes. And the immense weakness of that template in discovering who you are by looking into, through the window of the animal world is that they lack the moral structures that we need and the delicate decisions that we have to take in, in all our human relationships. Nature is raw in tooth and claw and every wild animal has a horrible ending and most domestic animals have a horrible ending too. And such graces as self-denial and mercy and pity and compassion. They're not paramount in the animal world. Now, there are many parallels between men and ourselves, men and, uh, and animals. Um, we have uh, identical hearts with numbers of animals, with sheep and with, uh, with pigs. Uh, our heart valves, we can take animals' heart valves and And we can have them implanted and they work very effectively in us. And uh, we have the same central nervous system. God doesn't spread diversity unnecessarily in the world. We're all made from the same stuff, the, the dust of the ground. 
But animals are so different, aren't they? They lack a conscience. The things of the law are not written on their hearts at all. Uh, We human beings, we weep. We human beings laugh. We write. We speak. We make works of art and works of music and poetry. A man will lay down his life for his friends. If the model for us to understand who we are is the animal world and how animals behave, violence will triumph and the fittest will survive. If you reject the living God and the possibility of knowing him, then who are you going to turn to? Many turn to Sigmund Freud. He dismissed a belief in the God of the Bible as a universal obsessional neurosis. So how did Freud define human identity? Well, by our sexuality. By our sexual desires and sexual identity. Um, He was a romantic. He was part of the whole German romantic movement, which said it's personal experience that creates personal identity. It's our sexual drives. It's whether we define ourselves as a heterosexual or as a homosexual. That tells us what we are. Not in relation to the God of creation. Not in relation to the animals. But with regards to our sexual orientation, we discover who we are. In the summer, there was an open-air meeting on the promenade. The Evangelical Movement of Wales was taking it. I was standing there listening to Dave Norbury and listening to J.P. Ernest speaking excellently to several hundred people that were gathered there. Lots of people came seeing the crowd and they listened. Those men could really communicate. And an old friend of the church, a girl called Anna Rose from Kent, she brought a man she was speaking to to talk to me because she couldn't handle some of the things that he was saying. I'd seen him around town, um, a middle-aged man, And for a couple of hours we spoke. Everyone else was left and there were just the two of us talking. And I didn't know that in the hotel where a lot of people from the conference were staying, some of them were standing in the bay window and they were looking at us two talking together and they were praying for me. He told me that having children was what life was all about. In other words, sexuality, what life was all about. He didn't say the word sex. But later, I could see that he was saying that human reproduction and relationships, that's what life was all about. That's what he was. I don't do enough discussion with uh, people in, in the world. I don't know how people in the world think. I would never have thought that on the promenade of Aberystwyth I would meet a Freudian. All I was able to do was witness to him about uh, biblical ethics and sexuality. You know, chastity before marriage, faithfulness within it. It's very, very simple and basic. And then a personal knowledge of, of God and how you can grow in knowing God and knowing yourself. I've told you of this incident because I'm talking to you about this journey into finding out who you are. And some of you 
don't know who you are. It would be awful if I asked one of you what your name was and you said, I don't know. I would look with horror and pity at you. You didn't know your own name. Wouldn't that be an utter priority that you would have to find out who you were? You would have to find out your name. Do you know who you are? How would you find out who you are? Why you're in this world? What's the purpose of, of this one brief life that hurries by? Who are you? I'm saying it's by the knowledge of God we discover who we are because God made us. It's not by turning to the animal world and seeing parallels, because there are parallels. And it is not by looking at human sexuality, which is so important, but you can absolutize that and so distort it. It is by looking at God, knowing God, knowing Jesus Christ. That's the first point I want to make. The second thing is, um, in God we live and move and have our being. This is what he says in the famous words of Acts 17 and verse 28. I've said them. They've slipped off my tongue hundreds of times. And there's a depth of meaning and a breadth of of truth in these simple, mainly one-syllable words. He's already told them God made the world and everything in it. Verse 24, that is, he's the creator of everything. But now he says he's the sustainer of everything that he has made. He's the God of providence. It's not that in the beginning he wound up the world and set it off and uh, it tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock away while he busies himself with the Milky Way or stuff outside of the universe. But he's involved. He's involved in everything. Nothing happens without God's permission. Nothing happens. But what God enables and what God empowers. So let me say two things about this great phrase, for in him we live and move and have our being. Firstly, it's probably a quotation from a Greek poet. This sermon is unusual in the New Testament. Amongst all the sermons that are recorded, in the New Testament, this one doesn't have a quotation from Old Testament scripture. It's quite unlike uh, Paul as he speaks in the synagogues and some of those summaries are in the Acts and he's quoting to them from the prophets and the writings and from Moses and Peter on the day of Pentecost. When we looked at that, we saw it was full of references to the Psalms and to Joel and, and to David. Paul doesn't quote from scripture here at all because it wouldn't mean a thing to these men, these philosophers, the Epicureans, the Stoics. What would it mean if he said, Jeremiah the prophet said this? Well, Jeremiah had no authority. It didn't ring any bells. It didn't mean they pricked up their ears to listen to him. What Paul says is true And it reflects the teaching of the word of God. In fact, it's a a typical Jewish polemic 
regarding God and idolatry and judgment and a summons to repentance. And yet it doesn't say, as Jeremiah says or as David says, because those things are hollow to them. I have a friend and uh, he brings out a, a monthly evangelistic leaflet and they go round the doors of the uh, houses that uh, circle the church and they put them through the letterboxes. Now, he quotes scripture, but he never gives the reference. I mean, he doesn't say John 3, colon 16, Romans 5, colon 1, because the, the people in the houses around, it, it wouldn't mean anything to them to do that. So he tells them the words of the Bible, but he doesn't give a reference like that to them. Now, our words to, to people, when we are quoting scripture, we don't say the chapter and verse. But we, we tell people scripture. What is more important is that the spirit of scripture is in our hearts. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So the word structures our thinking. Our thoughts are, are captive to Jesus Christ and we are speaking true words. Although we don't hurl scripture at them. So the words of our text are probably a quotation from a Stoic poet named Aratus. Or it could be from a poet called Minos of Crete, because they both said the same thing. You notice in your Bibles how the NIV puts the words I've quoted to you in inverted commas. But Paul doesn't quote them in the uh, rhyming meters of which the original poets wrote them. Um, he doesn't quote them in the Greek dialect in which they wrote them about 300 years before him. And then there's a second quotation, and this time he underlines it by saying to them, um, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And that, again, is either a, a quotation from Aratus, but it's also um, a quotation from another poet called Cleanthes. Paul knew poetry. Great poets are also great philosophers. John Newton is a great Christian philosopher, isn't he? God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Wonderful words. When Paul writes of the Corinthians, he quotes from the poet Menander. When he writes to Titus, he quotes from the poet Epimenides. Now, he isn't reducing his worldview to their worldview. He's not inferring that these people had a true knowledge of God. They had elements of truth. And that's true for all men and for all their beliefs. Paul had a classical education. And he studied, he didn't study just to pass exams. 
because knowledge is information and it's power. And so he studied. And then he could see something, some glimmerings of truth that these men had. I want you students really to study that you can profit from whatever subject you are taking. And I want you to ask that what you are learning may be useful for your family life, your personal life, and then for the church of Jesus Christ. So, who actually said the words of our text then is not all that important. But what is significant is that Paul saw uh, glimmerings of truth in what these men saw. And he said, you know, you, you know this quotation, don't you? I've come to tell you who the God is in whom your poet says we live and move and have our being. You get glimmerings in Shakespeare, many glimmerings in Shakespeare. You get them, I believe, in classic Western films like Shane and High Noon. You get them in the best popular songs like uh, James Taylor's uh, You Got a Friend. And so he tells the Areopagus um, in God. We have life and, and breath, verse 25. Your breath is a gift from God. Your breath, my unconscious breathing. That's God's gift to me. You, you think of that now. Have you seen a man with a bad asthma attack? And he's trying to breathe. It's like sucking in air through a very fine straw. Absolutely horrible. You feel paralyzed and helpless as you see him struggling to breathe. Your breathing is a gift from God. And he says this God isn't far from any one of us. Don't you know this? He says your own esteemed poets recognize this fact that in God we live and move and have our being. He's appealing to their hearts, wherever they were on their pilgrimage. I'm saying to you that you can't escape the creator and sustainer of this universe. The sunsets on the bay, they're on my side in speaking to you. The starlings in their murmurings, they're on my side. The full moon and its eclipse tonight, it's on my side. It says this didn't come about by luck. It came about by a powerful, a mighty, a glorious God. And it bears witness to your conscience that you are living in my Father's world, the God of the Bible. And so, um, because all of us are influenced by him and are made in his image, then men will say lots of true things. Your teachers, lots of true things. Your lecturers, your physicians, your psychiatrists, they will say many true and helpful things. You show them respect now. You do that. What they lack is the fear of God. What they lack is an experience of covenant love, a living acquaintance with the Lord of the Bible. They don't have those things. You pray that, that they may receive them and that your meekness 
and wisdom and love and patience will, will bear witness to what they see in you is your faith in, in Jesus Christ the Lord. So that's my first point about this 28th verse, that it's probably a quotation from a Greek poet. And then the second thing, it's the implications of what he says, the meaning of this phrase. It says three things about uh, the living God. And it says three things about us and our life and our movements and our character. Firstly, in God we live. We're alive because of God. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Psalm 139. There were millions of sperm at that congress. God determined one in particular should uh, fertilize that uh, one egg. You began. That's where you began. And then the single cell of the unborn child divided and multiplied millions of times. Your backbone, your, your nervous system, your limbs, your heart, your lungs, your head are formed all at proper times by God. He determined the color of your eyes, what color your skin would be. Or how high, how tall you'd be. Your uh, mental ability. And nine months later he brought you into the world. He gave you your first breath. And that breath and that breathing has been in God. The beating of your heart is in God. The movement of your blood through your arteries and veins is in God. The electrical activity in your brain is in God. It's going on at this moment in every one of you in the engagement that we have around the word of God. God is here. We are alive because of God. God has kept us. Inhale. Exhale. Until now. In God we live. Our life. And then he goes on next to our activity. In God we move. Let me turn it this way. Some people we call the movers and shakers. They're natural leaders, aren't they? In their personalities and in their intelligence and their wit and their sense of authority, they can enter a room and people turn around to see who's come into the room. John Wayne goes into a, a western saloon and the glasses are held and everyone looks around to see who's come in. But there are others, they're not like that at all. They slip into a room and no one knows that they've entered it. They never want any fuss. They hate to be the center of attention. Their worst nightmare would be them to faint in chapel while I'm preaching. That would be absolute horror for them. They move. They move too, but they move in a subdued way. They're not movers and shakers. Or again, let me turn it like this. There's one man... I love to see him run. His name is Ursine Bolt. He's the fastest man in the world. Great strides. Oh, it's a thrill to see him run. And there's another person that uh, I love to read her books and to, uh, and to see videos about. I've actually seen her in uh, Manchester uh, in the free hall there. Johnny Erickson Tada. And she 
she can't walk. She's paralyzed. She can just move her hands to feed herself. She broke her back in a diving accident when she was uh, 16 years of age. She moves. Listen, Bolt moves. She moves. And all the range of us between those two. And seven billion people in the world between those two. All of them moving. All, all of us moving as, as God is upholding us moment by moment. Not chance, not luck. The tottering feet of uh, my one-year-old uh, great-grandson now as he's walking and balancing so well. And the tottering of uh, a woman on a, a Zimmer frame just able to move slowly as she shuffles along because of that. Moving in God. Hitler moved in God. The ISIS murderers in Syria move in God. The Christian who walks to a brothel is moving in God. How horrible that thought is. We've all forfeited every right for every, any blessing from God because of the sin of our father Adam and our own sin. But God in his love blesses us that we move. Ah, we move down the aisle on the arm of our father as he gives us away in marriage. and We stand to receive our bride as she comes in. and We move. We move through life pushing a pram and waiting outside in the car for the children to come home from school, going behind the hearse as a loved one is buried. We move. In God, we move. And then he says, in God we have our being. And that's our, our character. Let me tell you about my being. I existed before I became a Christian. I became a Christian in March 1954. But even in those pre-Christian years, the hand of God was upon me. He preserved me and he protected me. There were times of temptation and sometimes God let me fall. And there were other times of temptation and he took the desire from me. Or he took away the possibility of fulfilling that desire. Or he made the desire itself repugnant to me. He was watching over me. His hand was upon me. And then I became a Christian in uh, an ordinary conversion in a, a little uh, chapel in uh, a South Wales Valley. And then I was no longer defined, my character, in relation to my family, that I was somebody's son or or somebody's brother, or in my gender, or sexuality, or in my age, or in my intelligence, or in my Welshness, or the things I had, or the things I did. After I was converted, I was in God. That was my character. From then on, that was what defined me. That I was a disciple of Jesus Christ. I was a new creation of his and in my conduct and in my words, I saw it often limping and staggering along to acknowledge my being was in the Lord. 
I lived and I moved and I had my being in him. He was my life. I had to think like that. I began to think like it. And I have to think like that still today because I died and rose again with Jehovah Jesus. I have my being in him and I, I know a conflict, a daily conflict between remaining sin and between the spirit that God has given to me. Between the who I am in the flesh and my new redeemed nature. That's my character in God at this very moment. And I'm presenting myself to God now and always as a, a living sacrifice. That's what I am. I'm a living sacrifice that I give to God. Use me, Lord. Use even me just as thou wilt and when and where. I say, as the hymnist says. That's my character then. And a little succession of victories every day and some defeats. And at the end of every day, thanking God and confessing to God. I live, I move, I have my being in God. That's who every Christian is. That's what a man should be. That's what you, men and women, should be. The last thing he says here is, we are the offspring of God. He tells them that. And the implication of that is, all men and women are made by God. And so we are his children, we are his offspring. So, you want to know who you are? You're a child of God because God made you. That's it. Now, let me open up some implications of that for you. Uh, Firstly, Everyone has knowledge. You have a mind, an intellect, a conscience. Much has been lost. Much of a man's intellect has been disordered. Men are often muddled about their origin and their purpose and their destiny. Uh, They're fallacious in their reasoning, but they still are reasoning beings. Man is capable of investigating, of forensic science of deliberation, of maintaining the rule of law. He can become a competent scientist, a brilliant reporter. Some of you had teachers in school that made a subject come alive. Geography came alive. French came alive. A science came alive. And you were here studying it because of the influence. That person wasn't a Christian, but had such ability and knowledge The powers that be are ordained of God. And those people were ordained of God to be your teachers. The theory of relativity isn't invalid simply because Einstein was an agnostic Jew. So every human being knows the rudiments of the moral law. They know the wrongfulness of pornography. They know the theft and trashing your room. And stealing your bicycle. And greed is wrong. The Romans knew that those that did those perversions are worthy of death. They knew that. Paul tells them. Felix wasn't uncomprehending when Paul spoke to this king and reasoned with him of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. He trembled 
because he understood what Paul was saying. His conscience bore witness that what Paul was saying to him was true. He knew his tragedy was how to stop doing what was wrong. Man knows. Man knows that the world has been brought about by an omnipotent and mighty and glorious God. He understands that from the handiwork of God that's all around us. The mountains and the seas speak of the living creator. But man clamps down on that knowledge. He doesn't want to interfere with his lifestyle. With the things that he chooses and loves to do. He suppresses and distorts that. He says, I won't have this God rule over me. Everyone also has freedom. We possess a basic freedom. God freely created all things. Now, our wills are are bound because of remaining sin. Our wills say, reject what the preacher says. Our wills say, don't read the Bible, don't pray, don't think about death, and we... We agree, we submit to it. We're slaves to king's sin. Galatians 3.22, the scriptures declare that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. Aberystwyth, a town of prisoners to sin. Wales, a principality of prisoners to sin. The United Kingdom, a kingdom of men and women who are prisoners of sin. Europe, a continent of men and women who are prisoners of sin. You too. But they freely submit to sinning. They choose it. It's not because God pushes a button. It's not because they've been computerized. Men freely choose to defy God. They're free agents. They're acting under no external compulsion. No one is forced by God to say no To Jesus Christ. People choose. To do that thing. It's not because of. Man's animal ancestry. That in Nigeria. Girls are kidnapped. And forced to marry at a young age. And that in Syria. Then people are beheaded. Or set alight. It's not glandular. It's not a biological phenomenon. We we are no friends of determinists, we Christians. I'm saying that your life isn't just mapped out by some remorseless factors that you're on a conveyor belt and you can't get off it, that you're trapped by the influences of your parents and uh, the people who betrayed you when you were a teenager and working conditions. None of those things force you to lie and cheat, and be impatient and nasty to other people. It's the choice. You make that choice freely. In Genesis 3, there's a a wonderful environment. It's free of sin. Everything is just beautiful and peaceful. And there in that environment, man says yes to sin and no to God. In the latter chapters of Genesis, here is Joseph. 
And he's in an atmosphere that's seething with sexual intrigue and suggestion and power. He's a servant, and there's a woman there who dominates. He says no to her. Freely, by the power of God, he says no to her. I'm saying to you, you can't plead the influences of your companions and your parents that have made you an unbeliever and that you're simply tolerating what I'm saying to you this morning. Your guilt is your guilt, and you answer to God for it. Thirdly, everyone has an aesthetic sense, a, a sense of beauty, because we're made by God. We can appreciate form and sound and loveliness. We can do that. In the book of Exodus, there's Bezalel, and his gifts were in this area. He could carve and he could sculpt, and he could work in precious metals, and he could cut and set stones and do all sorts of artistic craftsmanship, and he is recognized. The Spirit of God was in him to do that. But it's a dangerous thing, isn't it, this sense of beauty? Yet your friends have. You're studying art, and you know how few of those students have any interest in Jesus Christ. They live for their art. It was the sense of beauty that betrayed Eve, she saw the tree and she saw that it was pleasing to the eye. It's a powder keg. And there's a preacher and he's good looking. And he's witty. And he's an orator. And he believes error. And you're trapped by him. And you start to believe what he believes because of the beauty in which he expresses falsehood. But a sense of beauty is what we all have to handle. You know, there's an Australian preacher, and uh, he says uh, he says something famous. He says the Bible only says two things about choosing a spouse. The Bible says, firstly, he must be a member; she must be a member of the opposite sex. And secondly, the Bible says uh, he or she must be a Christian. That's all the Bible says. I think he's wrong. I think it says something else. He or she must be fair to you. You must think he's beautiful. She's beautiful. You have to think that. A sense of beauty God has given to us. Especially in marriage and faithfulness. It's not, well, she's a woman and she's a Christian. It's not enough, is it? It's not enough. There's the sense of beauty. And we can't ignore that. We can't ignore that. Uh, Chris, our web designer, has been working on the web and has been improving the web now so that people will look at it and will have ease in moving around it and get to the various sites that are there. We are thinking of... Uh, uh, advertising special meetings and we're producing cards and leaflets and little booklets and things and we want them to be attractive because people have an aesthetic sense we're not Philistines and the worst uh, sin of all is not being a Philistine the worst sin is saying no to God the fourth thing uh, everyone experiences 
relationality because we are uh, we are the offspring of God. I mean by relationality, I mean we can experience close communion with other people. There are great friendships in the world. Dr. Johnson and Bosworth. Boswell, Coleridge and Wordsworth were great friends. Uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck in Hollywood, they are supposed to be great friends. The Prime Minister and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, they are supposed to be great friends, aren't they? I mean, the friendships amongst Christians, David and Jonathan, Paul and Timothy. In church history, William Cooper and Morley Unwin are, are friends. They're precious to us. It's wonderful to have a friend. You don't have many friends in life. Oh, it's wonderful to have a friend. There are people starving for relationships, aren't they? The Lonely Hearts columns then in yesterday's papers of people describing who they're looking for. Good sense of humor, they say. The first article of the Christian faith is that God is one. But God is also three, isn't he? He is Father, he is Son, and he is Holy Spirit. And there's love and intertwining care and compassion and delight in one another. And we are made in the image of God. It's not good for man to be alone, God says. And the longing for communion means that we meet together. We're not going to be absent from people. And that's why when there's division in the church, it's a horrible thing. It takes away our sleep. takes away our peace of mind. It ruins the lives of many in the congregation. And the loneliness of men and women without God is one of the basic truths that the gospel addresses. I have a friend for you. I can say that to everybody in Aberystwyth. He'll stick to you closer than any brother. Your brothers reject you, but this one will never reject you. A mother's tender care can cease toward the child she bears, but God's love will never cease toward you. Here's a friend. That's why I like that song I mentioned. Spring, summer. Winter, summer, or fall. All you have to do is call. And I'll be there, God says. I'll be there. This is what being in the image of God is. I've explained to you then these things. Um, The usefulness of knowledge, knowing the poets. I've told you about... uh, the fact that we live and move and have our being in God, that God has brought us here today and he's sustaining us. Our breath is in his mouth. And that there are characteristics that we have because God made us in this wonderful way. You come to know him. And then you'll know yourself. Our Heavenly Father, bless your word to us now, we pray. And help us, help us as we live, to live for you and live with you. And come to a greater dependence on you and the strength we gain from you to live for you. 
Lord, open people's eyes to see who they are. Bless them. Make their lives a blessing to others day by day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.